The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So before I give this talk, I always have to give a warning. Uh, if you don't understand it, don't sweat it. You know, this is, this is the deepest sutta in the Pali Canon, according to my current non-clung-to opinion. There's a lot of deep stuff in it, so, you know, if it doesn't come across, let it go. Either I didn't do a good job or you can come back to it or both. So, so this is about emptiness. The sutta is the Katyanagota Sutta, number 1215 in the Samyutta Nikaya. Uh, Samyutta 12, as I mentioned, is a dependent origination Samyutta, and this is the 15th sutta. At Savati, the venerable Katyana Gota approached the Blessed One, saluted, sat down on one side, and said, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? So the first thing to notice, this is the venerable Katyana Gota. This is not some monk or the bhikkhu Katyana Gota. This is an advanced practitioner. So right off we get a hint this is going to be a more advanced sutta. And he wants to know what's up with right view. This world katyana for the most part depends upon a duality. Upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it is with correct wisdom... The notion of non-existence does not appear to him. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it is with correct wisdom, then existence does not occur to him. There's no notion of existence in regard to the world. Now notice it's the notion of existence. It's not the duality of existence and non-existence. It's the notion of it that we're caught on. This world, Katyana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. Views and opinions. But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through that engagement and clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, underlying ten tendency. He does not take a stand about myself. Okay, so the Buddha was asked, is there a self? He didn't reply. Is there no self? He didn't reply. After his questioner, Vachagota, went away, the Buddha turned to Ananda and said, if I had said there was a self, he would have fallen into the mistake of eternalism. If I had said there was no self, he would have fallen into the mistake of annihilationism. Better not to say anything at all and leave poor Katyanagota as confused as he is, rather than even worse confused. So, one with right view does not take a stand about myself or about my soul. Doesn't have an opinion as to whether there's a soul or not. Doesn't go there. 
One with right view has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising. What ceases is only dukkha ceasing. This knowledge about this is independent of others. It is in this way, Katyana, that there is right view. All that arises is dukkha arising. All that ceases is dukkha ceasing. This is right view. All exist. This is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, Atatagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. With this as necessary condition, that arises. With the ceasing of this necessary condition, that ceases. Now, for those of you following along on your iPads, I just misread the sutta. <laughs> because what it says is, with ignorance as condition, uh, sankaras come to be with sankaras as condition, consciousness all the way up, and then with the ceasing of ignorance, the ceasing all the way up. But that doesn't really make any sense in the context of the sutta. There are several suttas in this samyutta that appear to have been stepped on. They probably ended with the Buddha saying something quite simple, but not quite as rhythmic for chanting. And so instead of the Buddha ending by saying, Atatagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle, but teaches Samuppada, dependent origination. And that's just like not so much fun to chant, so they threw in this other stuff. Uh, I'm guessing that what he said is with this as necessary condition that comes to be, with the ceasing of this necessary condition that ceases. Just the basic this-that conditionality. Now, as I said, this is a really deep sutta. The implications are quite striking. That the middle way is between the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. The middle way is between the notion of eternalism, I've got a soul and I'm going to live forever, or at least I'm going to come back next time in a better place, and, and the notion of annihilationism, I'm going to be destroyed. When I die, that's it. The Buddha is saying, neither one of these is right view. Right view is found in the middle between them by looking at the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena, in terms of this, that conditionality. This is a pretty striking thing. Mostly we want a hard definitive answer about the existential questions of life, right? We want to know, you know, what's going to happen to me after I die? And the Buddha is basically saying, you've asked an unintelligible question because you have assumed there's a me there, right? That you have assumed some sort of existence of a self. And he says, one with right view does not take a stand about myself. This may not seem the most profound sutta in the Pali Canon to you at this point. But it's been used as a basis of some very, very deep teaching. The person who turned me on to this sutta is a fellow by the name of Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna lived about 100 AD. Uh, 
He was born in South India under an Arjuna tree. He was born to a Brahmin family, and by the time he was 20, he was highly skilled in the Brahmin lore of his time. But he had a sensual side that was unfulfilled, and he and three friends learned from a sorcerer how to make themselves invisible. And then they snuck into the king's private quarters, into the harem quarters, and had their way with the women. The king learned of this and stationed soldiers behind the curtains and told them to strike above the footprints in the carpet. When Nagarjuna and his three friends returned, his three friends were killed. Nagarjuna managed to survive by standing next to the king. He escaped from the palace and fled to the hills. He had discovered craving causes dukkha. He began studying the early teachings of the Buddha and completely mastered them, it is said, in three months. But they left some of his deepest questions unanswered. At that point, he encountered an old monk who was a follower of the Mahayana tradition. He was sufficiently inspired by these teachings that he left his mountain hideaway and began traveling throughout India collecting other Mahayana teachings and debating all those who would debate with him and defeated all comers. He eventually established his own order and a rule for his monks to live by and eventually said, I have no master. It was at this point that a Naga, a mythical sea serpent, had compassion for him and took him to the bottom of a lake where the Prajma Paramitra Sutras were stored, the wisdom discourses of the Buddha. These are discourses that the Buddha gave in his lifetime that were so profound that it was felt no one would be able to understand them. And so they were entrusted to the Nagas to preserve until humanity had matured enough to where they could understand them. And now the Nagas felt that Nagarjuna was the man to disseminate him to the human realm. So they entrusted him with these sutras and he brought them back to the human realm where he wrote various commentaries on them, the most famous one being the Mulayamaka Kariika, the fundamental verses on the middle way. It is said that his renown became so great that he was invited by a king to participate in a magic contest with a Brahmin scholar. The Brahmin scholar created a lake and seated himself on a lotus throne in the middle of that lake, mocked Nagarjuna from being stranded on dry land. Nagarjuna conjured up a white elephant which waded into the lake and threw the Brahmin back onto dry land. The Brahmin admitted defeat but wished that Nagarjuna was dead. Nagarjuna locked himself in his room. The next day, a worried disciple broke down the door. A cicada flew out. The room was empty. At least that's what they tell us about him. What we know for sure is somebody wrote the Mulamayamaka Karika. These fundamental verses on the middle way. Someone who was obviously quite brilliant, 
who had a great deal of respect for the Buddha and the early teachings. He was clearly not what we would call a Theravadan. In some of his verses, he he doesn't have particularly good things to say about the current stance that is taken by the Abhidhammas. But it's kind of hard to see where he would be a Mahayanist either. Uh, he never mentions the Bodhisattva vow or the ideal of the Bodhisattva. He appears to be someone who was inspired by both sets of teachings and founded his own way of expressing this. This way that he founded became the Madhyamaka teachings of early Mahayana Buddhism, which still flourish in some respects today in some of the schools of Tibetan Buddhism. He mentions two suttas by name in his verses from the center, as Stephen Batchelor translates it. One of them is the Katyanagota Sutta, that everything is dependently originated, that you don't think in terms of existence or non-existence. And the other sutta he mentions by name is a Mahayana Sutta, Sutra, but I'm not familiar with it, so can't tell you what it says. What I want to do now is share some of these verses with you to give you a sense of the emptiness that evolved, and I have that in quotes, from the Katyanagota Sutta. This is from Stephen Batchelor's poetic translation of verses from, of the Mulamayamaka Karika entitled Verses from the Center. Walking. I do not walk between the step already taken and the one I'm yet to take, which both are motionless. Is walking not motion between one step and the next? What moves between them? Could I not move as I walk? If I move when I walk, there would be two motions, one moving me and one my feet. Two of us stroll by. There is no walking without walkers and no walkers without walking. Can I say that walkers walk? Couldn't I say they don't? Walking does not start in steps taken or to come or in the act itself. Where does it begin? Before I raise a foot, is there motion? A step taken or to come, whence walking could begin? What has gone? What moves? What is to come? Can I speak of walkers when neither walking, steps taken, nor to come ever end? Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, there would be walkers who do not walk. These moving feet reveal a walker, but did not start him on his way. There was no walker prior to departure. Who was going where? So, were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. But if they were different, there would be walkers who do not walk. Walkers and walking are both concepts. 
There's no essence in any of these. These are con concepts that we lay on pieces of reality to try and deal with them. Emptiness is the emptiness of an essence. It does not mean things don't exist. It's basically saying that the things that we encounter, work with, deal with, are concepts. They don't have any sort of ultimate reality. So walking is a concept, and walkers are a concept, but they're not independent concepts. Seeing. If my eyes cannot see themselves, how can they see something else? Were there no trace of something seen, how could I see it all? Neither seeing nor unseeing see. Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? Just as a child is born from mother and father, so consciousness springs from eyes and colorful shapes. Without these eyes, how could I know consciousness, contact, craving of Vedana, cra craving, clinging, becoming, birth, aging, and death? Seers seeing sights explain hearers hearing sounds, smellers smelling smells, tasters tasting tastes, touchers touching textures, and thinkers thinking thoughts. Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. Just like walking, these are concepts that are not independent. They are interrelated. And they're empty of any essence. Body. I have no body apart from parts which form it. I know no parts apart from a body. A body with no parts would be unformed. A part of my body apart from my body would be absurd. Were the body here or not, it would need no parts. If it had an essence, it wouldn't be dependent on having parts. Partless bodies are pointless. Do not get stuck in the body. I cannot say my body is like its parts. I cannot say it's something else. Vedna, perceptions, drives, minds, things are like this body in every way. Conflict with emptiness is no conflict. Objections to emptiness, no objections. So our bodies are made up of parts. But our bodies are also more than the sum of our parts. And the parts that make up our body change. And sometimes they become not a part of our body. I mean, when you get a haircut and you look at the floor afterwards, you don't go, oh no, some of me is on the floor, right? You've stopped identifying with part of your body. You clip your fingernails. You don't think it's part of you going in the garbage can, right? These are just parts. 
and we are identifying them as mine until they grow too long and then we whack them off. All the other parts are much the same way. I remember my grandmother asking me, where does your lap go when you stand up? Right? It's empty as well. This next one is entitled Self. Where mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixation spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Buddhists speak of self and also teach no self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it is both real and unreal and it is neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixable by fixations, incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. You are not the same as or different from the conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. Maybe that's worth rereading. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. Okay, did you ever change your mind? When you changed your mind, did you become somebody else? I mean, your mind is a very unstable thing. Let's really get down to it. Not unstable in the lock him in the ward type, but it's changing all the time. And your body, well, you change out every one of those cells all seven years. But you're still sitting there thinking, it's me. You had this opinion 10 years ago, and now you got that opinion, and all the cells are different, but it's still me. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. This sense of me, this sense of self, is dependent upon this mind and this body, but certainly not the same as. What is mine when there is no me? This points to where the freedom lies. If you're not conceiving of a self, then you're not conceiving of anything being mine, so there's no craving and clinging and no dukkha. Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. 
This is how we go through life. This is me, you know, in here. And this is mine. This is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixation spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Fixations is Stephen Batchelor's translation of papancha. So papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. You can keep your rotten potatoes. Emptiness stops papancha. Buddhas speak of self and also teach no self. And also there is nothing which is either self or not. This last one, there is nothing which is either self or not, is what we find in the Katyanagota Sutta. At times, the Buddha is very clearly saying there is a self. He tells some of his followers, you know, you want a good self in the next life, you need to behave yourself in this life. This teaching appears multiple times in the suttas. And at other times, he's talking about anatta, not self, no self. But in his deepest teaching, he's saying there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. If we can get past sankara-ing, concocting of the world, we get past the giving birth to these concepts and the death of these concepts. Nargajuna is very much pointing out the conceptual nature of everything that's going on. There are these empty phenomena rolling on and we grab hold of some process with a concept and make it into a noun. It was born and therefore it's going to die. If you don't start fixating on things, if you can keep a mind that is free of concocting, then everything is free. The Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it is both real and unreal and it is neither one nor the other. He taught according to the context, according to who his listeners were and what would benefit them. It is all at ease, unfixable by fixations, incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. The universe, which of course is another concept, but we've got to use concepts to try and point to this, fingers pointing at the moon, is all at ease. The universe is not upset at all about how it's unfolding, it's just unfolding. It's unfixable by fixations. No amount of papancha is going to give you a handle on what's going on. It's just too big for our little pea brains. It's incommunicatable. To communicate, we've got to bust it up into pieces and share the concepts. Inconceivable. It's bigger than we can conceive. Indivisible. When we bust it into pieces, we're no longer getting the big picture. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. 
You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. You are a dependently originated phenomena, but you are not the same as all those streams of dependently originated phenomena that you conceive of as you, right? That make what you conceive of as you, and yet you're never severed from them either. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. The wisdom of awakening is here for all of us to see. You don't have to have a Buddha or the Buddha's followers. It's intrinsic in the way the universe is put together. You just have to pay attention. Unfortunately, most of us don't pay attention until we get somebody to teach us to pay attention. That's why it's very helpful to have Buddhas and their followers around to point out that we do need to pay attention. The next one is awakening. Awakening starts with an objection by a opponent, uh, an Abhidhamist, we would say, someone who is a studier of the Abhidhamma, which is the prevalent form of non-Mahayana Buddhism at the time. It's probably the Sarvastivadin Abhidhamma, not the Theravadin Abhidhamma, but still a way of looking at the Buddha's teachings through deconstructionism. And this opponent says, if everything is empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. There would be no understanding, letting go, cultivating, realizing. Without tasting the fruits of practice, there would be no community, no truths, no dharma either. With no community and dharma, how could you awaken? Talk of emptiness maligns what is of value. Acts and fruits, good and evil, conventions fall apart. So his opponent is basically saying, if things are empty, they don't exist. He's misunderstood emptiness to think that it's non-existence, nihilism. Nargajuna, oh, and then the opponent says, not knowing emptiness, the need for it or the point of it, you subvert it. Sorry, this is Nargajuna saying to him, not knowing emptiness, the need for it or the point of it, you subvert it. In other words, you have no clue what you're talking about. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. Misperceiving emptiness injures the unintelligent, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dharma, knowing it hard to intuit its steps. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. When emptiness is possible, 
everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you are riding. To see things existing by nature is to see them without causes or conditions, thus subverting causality, agents, tools and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. Were everything not empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. Without dependent origination, how could I suffer dukkha? This shifting dukkha has no nature of its own. If it did, how could it have a cause? Deny emptiness and you deny the origins of dukkha. If dukkha existed by nature, how could it ever cease? Absolute misery could never stop. How could you cultivate a path that existed by nature? How could it lead to the end of dukkha? A path on which you tread can have no essence of its own. If confusion existed by nature, I would always be confused. How could I know anything? Letting go and realizing cultivation and fruition could never happen. Who can attain absolute goals that by nature are unattainable? Since no one could reach them, there would be no community. With no truths, no dharma either. With no community or dharma, how could I awaken? I would not depend on awakening, nor awakening on me. A naturally unawakened person would never awaken, no matter how hard he practiced for its sake. He would never do good or evil. An unempty person would do nothing. He'd experience the fruits of good and evil without having done good or evil deeds. How can fruits of good and evil not be empty if they are experienced? To subvert emptiness and dependent origination is to subvert conventions of the world. It engenders passivity, acts without an author, authors who do not act. Beings would not be born or die. They would be frozen in time, alien to variety. If things were unempty, you could attain nothing. Dukkha would never end. You would never let go of compulsive acts. To see dependent origination is to see dukkha, its origin, cessation, and the path. I think this one might be worth rereading. So I'll skip the opponent since he doesn't know what he's talking about. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. So these are the two truths, the relative and the absolute, or the conventional and the ultimate, or actually partial truths of the world, truths that don't fully reveal what's going on, and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, conventions in the relative world, you cannot disclose the sublime. We need fingers that point at the moon. Otherwise, we forget to look up. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. 
Understanding what's going on from a relative perspective is not enough for you to experience freedom. It's not enough for you to give up craving and clinging. So this is not the earliest enunciation of the two truths. That appears to occur in the questions of King Melinda, which would be a couple hundred years after the Buddha, perhaps. But by the time of Nagarjuna, the doctrine of the two truths was there, and he elucidates it very clearly here. There are two truths. It's not that there are two realities. There are two truths. Two viewpoints for looking at the world. Is this bowl concave or convex? Come on. Let's hear it. Which is it? I mean, it can't be both, right? No, it's got to be concave or it's got to be convex. Well, it depends on your viewpoint, right? This is what the two truths is about. There are two viewpoints. One viewpoint looks at the world in terms of selves and objects and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and fingers holding the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and is able to distinguish between the two and eat the sandwich and not the fingers. Right? You've got to have that relative level viewpoint at times. You can't get across Hopkins Avenue if you don't have that. If you look up and you say, oh, that car is empty and step out in front of it, <laughs> it won't work. But that relative viewpoint is not a viewpoint that can lead you to freedom. You're going to have to look from the sublime viewpoint as well. And this is what Nagarjuna is pointing at. This is what the emptiness teachings are about. Misperceiving emptiness, that is thinking it means annihilation or nihilism, injures the unintelligent, like you, Mr. Complainer, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dhamma, knowing it hard to intuit its steps. Remember, the Buddha was reluctant to teach and finally decided to teach only to those who had little dust in their eyes. And you, Mr. Complainer, have too much dust in your eyes. You can see where this guy was wicked in debate. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. If things have an essence, an essential nature, then they can't change. They're locked into this form, this essence. Emptiness is pointing out that change can indeed happen. So the possible rests on the fact that things can change from the way they are now. If things were unempty, you're locked into what's right here, right now, and nothing other than what's right here, right now, is possible. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you are riding. This is a story about a man who had two dozen horses, and one morning he went out and mounted up on one of his horses and rode out to count the horses. One, two, three, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. Oh no, someone's stolen one of my horses. <laughs> forgetting to count the horse he was riding. 
To see things existing by nature is to see them without causes and conditions. If something has an essence, it couldn't have been caused. It has to have had that essence all along. If it was caused, then it came into being. So it has then no essence. So if they have an essence, they don't have causes and conditions. If you see the world that way, you subvert causality, agents, tools, and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. And then the heart of the whole Mulamayamaka Karayika. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Now this translation doesn't bring it out, but what Nagarjuna is saying is emptiness is also empty. It's just another concept. Don't go making an ultimate out of emptiness. But it's a useful concept. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. Were everything not empty, there would be no rising and passing. In other words, if you were an unenlightened person, you could never become an enlightened person because you have an essence of unenlightened. Ennobling truths would not exist. Without dependent origination, how could I suffer dukkha? The shifting dukkha has no nature of its own. You better hope dukkha doesn't have an essence. Because if you're experiencing it, your essence is that you're experiencing the essence of dukkha and you're stuck like that forever. But luckily it doesn't have an essence. If it did, how could it have a cause? Deny emptiness and you deny the origins of dukkha. If dukkha existed by nature, how would it ever cease? Absolute dukkha could never stop. Right? You've got to have dukkha being empty if it's going to stop. How could you cultivate a path that exists by nature? How could it lead to the end of dukkha? A path on which you tread can have no essence of its own. Think about this. You go for a hike in the woods and you're following a path. What is the most important aspect of the path? It doesn't have anything in it. No trees, no rocks. What makes it a path is the lack of anything. Right? Paths obviously have no essence. If confusion existed by nature, I would always be confused. Letting go, how could I know anything? Letting go and realizing cultivation and fruition can never happen. So, if you're confused at this point in time and that's your essence, you are essentially, essentially confused <laughs> forever. So you better hope your confusion has no essence. Who can attain absolute goals that by nature are unattainable? If you're not awakened at this point, then your essence is that of an unawakened being and no matter how hard you practice, you're not going to make any progress. Since no one could reach them, there would be no sangha. With no truths, no dharma either. With no sangha or dharma, how could I awaken? I would not depend on awakening, nor awakening on me. A naturally unawakened person would never awaken, no matter how hard he practiced for its sake. He would never do good or evil. An unempty person would do nothing. 
He'd experienced fruits of good and evil without having done good or evil deeds. How can fruits of good and evil not be empty if they are experienced? All of this stuff is just dependently originated phenomena coming together, passing on. There's no essence in any of it. To subvert emptiness and dependent origination is to subvert conventions of the world. It engenders passivity. Acts without an author, authors who do not act. Beings would, be born, would not be born nor die. They would be frozen in time, alien to variety. If things weren't unempty, you better hope you were in a good mood when that happened because you stuck like that forever. If things were unempty, you could attain nothing. Dukkha would never end. You would never let go of compulsive acts. To see dependent origination is to see dukkha, its origins, cessation, and the path. The next one is entitled Nirvana. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But towards the end of it, it says something quite striking. Samsara is no different from Nirvana. Nirvana is no different than samsara. Samsara's horizons are the same as nirvana's. The two are exactly the same. What Nargajuna is saying is this is nirvana. If you see it the right way. If you look at it through the eyes of a Buddha. If you look at it through a confused worlding, then it's samsara. Nirvana, as he says in this one, is just as empty as everything else. It too has no essence. Right? It's a realization. When you go over to Half Moon Bay and you stand there ankle deep in the water, you can see that the world ends six miles out. Right? You know, you look out there, a ship gets too close to the edge of the world, just goes right over the edge of the world, all those people die. Happens far too often. Right? It's an illusion. You don't understand what's going on. Let's say they come along, they grab you, they stuff you in the space shuttle, go around, you see it's a sphere, they explain gravity, you go back to Half Moon Bay, you stand there ankle deep in the water. It looks exactly like it looked before. But you don't make the mistake of conceiving of the edge of the world. Right? You have a different understanding. The non-existence of the edge of the world is not a thing. It doesn't have what they call ontological existence. As far as I can tell, nirvana, nibbana, is the realization of the non-existence of an essential self. But that realization doesn't have an essence, just like the realization of the non-existence of the edge of the world doesn't have an essence. (laughs) I don't know if I can. (laughs) The non-existence of the edge of the world isn't an ontologically existent thing. It doesn't have any essence. It, it doesn't have any thinghood. It's just a realization, a dependently originated realization. 
Nibbana, Nirvana, is experiencing the world without the craving that causes dukkha, without the selfish bit in there. There's been a realization of the non-existence of the essential nature. The realization of this existence doesn't have an essence either. It's a dependently originated phenomena. So Nibbana, like everything else, is also empty. But you've got to take the right perspective to see it. So it was with a great deal of fear and dread, I say. Any questions? <laughs> More a historical question. This, these paradoxes that you're talking about today, are they the genesis of the Kohen practice in Zen, or are these independently arising of each other? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, could be. Could be. When, when you were speaking of something having an essence and it not being able to ever cha change from what it is, is that, it seems like a semantic way of looking at it because it seems like you can, something can start certain, at a state, at a certain state, and then it can change. It just has initial conditions and then it could change. In a sense, what you're saying is that we have defined essence in such a way that you're something starting at a state and then it can change as meaning it has no essence. And you're correct. In other words, things that have essence cannot change because having an essence means that something permanently is like that. By, by definition, right? So remember, all of this stuff is translated, this from Sanskrit, all the previous stuff from Pali. We're trying to put it into English in some way that imparts the understanding behind it. So we've taken this finger that's pointing at the moon that we can't see because we don't read Sanskrit and made a copy of it over here in English. But that was a left-handed finger and this is a right-handed finger. And so it doesn't come off quite exactly the same. So we've got to try and dig back behind what's there. And so by definition, the essence that's being talked of is the essential, unchanging nature of things. The Abhidhammist had a sense that, okay, yeah, everything is impermanent except the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air, have an essential nature. Right? And so they started becoming essentialist. You could build things out of these essences. And Nargajuna's going, no man, you can't find any essence anywhere. It's all dependently originated phenomena.
just wondering what it takes to actually learn or have that point of view sort of more or less always. I mean, do, I have, do I have to go to the, do I have to go up and circle the earth before I can really keep that view? No, you just got to practice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, use that word lightly, essentially what the Buddha is saying is lead a morally upright life, build a nice foundation of ethical behavior, concentrate your mind, and investigate reality. And just do that thoroughly enough and you'll have that point of view after you get past the disenchantment and the dispassion. But yeah, to have that always, yeah, I, I don't know all the details because I ain't there. Could you talk a little bit about the, uh, the notion of Nibbana is often presented in terms of the deathless the, or the unconditioned, um, and in the Abhidhamma, isn't it one of the four realities along with Rupa? And I can't remember them all, but... Yeah. yeah. This, the, Ab- this, the Abhidhamma came up with a lot of interesting stuff. But, but we, we, hear, we hear the deathless and the unconditioned. There are probably some other concepts, that, other nounish kinds of concepts that describe it. Um, I just wonder if you could say something about that. Uh, page 176. Thus have I heard. At one time the Lord was staying near Savati in Jeta's wood at Anatapindika's monastery. And on that occasion the Lord was instructing the bhikkhus with a Dhamma talk connected with Nibbana. And those bhikkhus were intent on listening to this Dhamma. There is bhikkhus a not born, a not brought to being, a not made, a not conditioned. If bhikkhus there were none of these, then no escape from what is born, brought to being, made, conditioned would be discerned. But since there is these, an escape is discerned. That's how it's translated by John D. Ireland. The key words being, not born, not brought to being, not made, not conditioned. I checked with Andy Olinsky about the original Pali. The words are uh, past participles, okay, so past tense, not born, unborned, unbrought to being. This would be unbecome, unbecame not made, unfabricated, not conditioned. Not conditioned is a translation of asankaraham, I think is how it's pronounced. Sankara with an ah meaning not sankara and a past participle making it a past and a noun. So the unconcocted, right? So... There is, now remember in Pali, there are no A, an, or the. So there is unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconcocted. When we translate it to English, we want to stick A or the in front of it. Those who stick the in front of it then have their essential nibbana, 
Right? If you stick A, it doesn't quite get so essential, but I think it misses the point. You've got to actually think in poly. There is unborn, unmade, unbecome, unconcocted. This is a way of looking at the world without conceiving of things being born, made, become, without concocting without getting caught in the sankharas, without positing an essential nature, but instead seeing everything as dependently originated phenomena rolling on. That's my interpretation of it. What's the, what's the reference? Udana 8.3, the Nibbana Sutta. I hesitate to ask anything because I'm not really clear. There's too much, but... Uh, The Buddha was very big on people asking questions, (laughs) so please. Um, So, in, in talking about the relative and the unconditioned, but, um... As soon as you use the, and, and the Buddha said, it's neither, like we, we neither have a self, nor don't have a self, nor, you know. Actually, what he says is don't have an opinion about that. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to like relate all this to the English word real. And maybe yeah. that makes everything, then that puts the essence back in to it somehow. It's like, to me, you know, I always, I looked at, like, there's conventional reality and then there's the absolute, and they're both real, you know, as far as our lives. I don't don't even, I I don't even know what my my question is. Yeah, I, I would say there are conventional truths and ultimate truths, or conventional views and ultimate views, but there's only one reality, okay? They're not separate realities as someone used. But what we need to do is find out which conventions in the relative world enable us to negotiate this underlying reality in a way that reduces the dukkha. Would that be something? And that, that if something is real, if some convention was real, it was in harmony with the reality, the underlying reality, in such a way that if you acted according to that convention, it would reduce the dukkha. So I think what I'm asking, we have to live in both, we are in both worlds. Yeah. Well, we're, I mean, in, we're in the one world, yeah. and we have Which to take both the, viewpoints from yeah. time to time. Yeah. There are times, I mean, when you're eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you better be in the reality of reality or you'll bite your fingers, right? If you're looking for freedom, you better be looking in terms of just dependently originated phenomena instead of essences. Thank you. That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. 
I've, I've heard I've heard the difference between the voting by I, I've heard the conventional line. What I've heard, I've heard the difference between the two stated this way. The ultimate truth is that relative truth is empty. Right. And that's all there is to it. And I've also heard it stated the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah. Right. But that the relative truth that there is is empty. Yeah. Very good. The only constant has changed. Yeah, the only constant has changed. Um, would construct be another word for um, the ideas that aren't here, the, the, the emptiness? You know, we, we think of everything as a construct. It's a, a the right. concoction, I guess. Would, a concoction. would that be a synonym, more or less? All sankharas are impermanent. All sankharas are dukkha. All phenomena are without self. Okay, this is from the suttas. The difference between sankharas and phenomena, okay, you take all the phenomena and you remove the sankharas, the piece you have left is nibbana. Okay, so nibbana is empty, without essence, dependently originated, without self. But the sankharas are also like that, but they also are impermanent and dukkha. Is the difference, whereas nibbana is not impermanent or dukkha. It can't be impermanent because it's not a thing, right? And it's not dukkha because it's the view of the world without the craving, so no dukkha arises. So how does how does this compare with say uh, with the idea of of concoctions, or I might mean, think constructs is a maybe modern philosophical term that's used similar to concoctions. How does it compare with postmodernism that would sort of deconstruct and say, you know, it's all in your head kind of thing? Yeah, I, I don't think the Buddha or Nagarjuna would say it's all in your head. It would say that all there is is dependently originated phenomena. Okay, and any entity you make out of that is all in your head. Okay, so it's just this interlocking, dependently originated phenomena rolling on. Don't make entities out of it, that's all in your head. But you can't always not make entities out of it, or you eat your fingers when you're eating the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So you've got to do both. That's the best that I've come to understand it. Well, I think it must be time now for a little meta, and then we can go. Okay, you can't leave right after this, but we'll do some meta first. So in order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments.
Imagine that in your heart is a beautiful white lotus blossom which opens all its petals and from the center of this lotus blossom out comes a golden beam of light which fills you from head to toe. Now think of someone you care about and let the golden beam of light from the center of your heart fill that person from head to toe. Think of other people you're close to, your family, your friends. Bring them to mind one by one and fill each of them with the golden light from your heart. Think of your acquaintances, people like your neighbors and co-workers. And again, bring them to mind one by one and fill each of them with the light from your heart. Think of someone you find difficult and let your heart light shine on that person as well. Now let the golden light from your heart fill everyone in this room. Let the light keep spreading out through this neighborhood. And then throughout the peninsula. And the whole Bay Area. Keep opening your heart so that the light grows stronger and stronger, touching everyone on the West Coast.
Let the light grow strong enough so that it touches everyone in North America. Especially sending some to Santicaro and Joe Marie. Keep letting this light grow stronger so that it goes all over the world. Sending as much light as you can to Japan. And to all the other places where people are experiencing great dukkha. Put your attention back on yourself, back in your own heart, and notice that as the light goes out to the whole world, the first thing it does is fill you. Now let this lotus blossom in the center of your heart close its petals, trapping the light inside. If you anchor this lotus blossom in your heart, you'll have a world full of love available anytime you want it. May all beings everywhere be happy. <laughs> 